Escape from Plan A. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host, Diana, and today I'm joined by a Sacramento activist and organizer, T. Hi, I'm T. Fansofa. I'm not from Sacramento, but I moved here four years ago to do just this, um, organize with folks on the, on the ground and do grassroots work. Grassroots work. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us like a rundown of the situation? Um, yeah, yeah. So I got here like four years ago and there was a lot of different organizing groups trying to fight already because in 2014 it was Trayvon, 15 it was Mike Brown and then led to the Ferguson uprising and then it kind of launched into with the Black Lives Matter hashtag kind of like created a movement and it was slow it was kind of slow but it was like people were doing their thing and we were like really getting a lot from Ferguson from there it was like in Sacramento the groups had started there was a lot of different PSL and like answer coalition those have been around for a while and like DSA um, and grassroots rides there was insight insight which then turned into Black Lives Matter Sacramento and then in 2015 2016 I was supporting their work 2017 that's when I joined their chapter to like really know what was going on with the police the sheriff all the sac law enforcement when I came into this work, I mean, there was already so many people who were brutalized and beat up and, you know, gotten away with murder within SAC PD and even in the sheriff's department. The first case that really was really big was Joseph Mann here, because in that he was having Joseph Mann, he, I think, or was it Dejan Flaneau? Dejan Flaneau, well, but, well both their cases, they were both facing a mental health crisis and they were both black men. And mm. with both their cases, they were being hunted down by the police. And with Joseph Mann, I feel like, if I recall correctly, he was being hunted down with a car. And even in the video cam footage, the car was, the, the cops were like saying to run him over. Um, oh my God. Right. Um, they were trying to kill him. They weren't trying to help him at all. He was having a mental health crisis. From 2016, we've tried to tell him to change and be accountable and, and have a community accountability process that has actual power. And they still haven't done that. And because of Joseph Mann, they've had to have CTI training or something where they do like a certain amount of hours of crisis intervention training, which they actually didn't have to do according to one of the people that were training them. And it was like very inadequate material. And this is in response to doing better by the likes of Joseph Mann and folk are in a crisis. Realizing this, like in 2016, and maybe it came out more like later, is that people who are going through a mental health crisis are likely to get killed by the police because the police don't know how to do anything but escalate. They don't really know how to talk to a person. And so if you're acting erratically and don't respond the way a cop wants you to respond, then they're going to use force. They're going to, you know, it's it's just an obvious. It's like not every cop will do that, but it's kind of obvious Especially if you're a more marginalized, unvulnerable community member, if you're unhoused, or if you're black, if you're queer, then that's more likely that you'll definitely get arrested, get a record, maybe keep getting records, allow yourself to be stuck in poverty. Not allow, 
but like the system makes it so the communities that are always vulnerable and always interacting with the cops are always the ones going back into the system getting more fines and not being able to escape out of poverty and this is the poverty trap and this just is one side of it I actually read somewhere that 70% of the black people who are in the prison system or like who get arrested by the cops are actually disabled. Wow, yeah. It's so messed up it's, that right, it's like right. if yeah, if you're mar- talk about we don't even know about these statistics and we don't even talk about them because the data matters and no one really cares enough to look at it and and I feel like maybe it's new now because we're we're looking at it now, but it's just terrible and horrifying to know that this has been happening for so long, you know? Mm-hmm. And even now, like, people who have been doing this work before I have, before, like, 2016 or whatever, or 2010 or, you know, have been doing this work and still just, like, yeah, it's still happening. Like, we've been saying Black Lives Matter since before it was a hashtag. You know what amazes me is how many white people are like, oh, my God, racism exists. What? <laughs> I it's a response. And white people right now, I, like need white people to like really tone down on their allyship and performativeness and just like really talk to their people don't tell me that racism exists like you don't think i fucking know that (laughs) yeah especially since these protests have happened like just like four to six years ago it's not even like oh it was a generation ago we have no living memory of this exactly it's like two years ago i was saying black lives matter in the seat and like people were fucking flipping me off you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, like, I remember those days of like trying to talk to white friends about right. racism. I'm not friends with any of those bitches anymore. <laughs> but they're probably trying to reach out to you now, huh? Yeah. Okay, remember <laughs> exactly. that one time? I totally get it now. Do you want to uh, just talk about like your your work? Yeah, totally. Um, I think I've been on and off with organizing here in Sacramento. I had a rough relationship with BLM Sacramento. And I'm not saying with the group well with blm in general and then also the blm former leadership which is tanya Faison, and she still hasn't stepped down she's an abuser in the community she's the lead i, I guess yeah. you could call it leading um blm sacramento for i think was it last year 2018 is when we called her to step down but i was working with them hardcore and i met a lot of amazing people uh, through Vilem Sacramento, they were like family. It got to a point of like 2018, 20, like four people died that year in Sacramento. Just in Sacramento. Just in Sacramento. Um, along with all the other abuses and, you know, Stefan Clark, we were going really hard for Stefan Clark. We were out in the bar- doing barbecues at the DA's office every day, like three times a day every week for almost a year. Um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about what happened with Stefan Clark? Uh, yeah, so Stephen Clark, on May 18, 2018, he was killed, he was murdered in his backyard for simply trying to get home. What he was caught up in was that they thought he was a suspect for, for stealing something. And so because they had saw him as a danger, because he had a phone in his hand, they killed him. They emptied two clips on him in his grandma's backyard. Yeah, and they have, still haven't recovered from that. It was It was really big, like... You know, Stevante, his brother, had, like, a major public breakdown um, in front of everyone, you know. Like, it's it's sad having that played out, but I think the Sacramento community really understood what he was going through mentally. But not everyone does, you know. How do you, how do you expect someone to react when you get your brother's killed and then you get national spotlight and then you're, like, talking to all these people? Um, and then they're like, 
trying to tear your family apart by like talking shit on your brother, talking shit on you and your record and all this shit. And imagine what a family goes through when, when they do get the spotlight after having your family member killed by a police officer and then having your family demonized um, after and then, and then having a lawsuit and then signing a non-disclosure agreement to not even talk about it anymore. Yeah, so that that was Stefan Clark, and that was the first one, twenty eighteen, and then June six was Brandon Smith, who was killed by multiple agencies. Um, he was tortured by his probation officer, and then he was dragged. I mean, he he volunteered to go to Volunteers of America to rehab. Um, his mom took him there. My mom was dropping him off. He was fine. His mom came back, dropped him off cigarettes. He was fine. Two hours later, he's dead. He's beat up by his probation officer, picked up all of a sudden by SAC PD to ta- be taken to main jail, and he's already injured. They handcuffed him. This is on footage. And they throw him in the back of the police van, head first, and you hear it. And then he's, he's making noise, screaming in agony, and then all of a sudden it's quiet, you know, during this really short drive to uh, main jail. And yeah, and they just let him die. Uh, so Brandon Smith was killed June 6th. Um, and then it was Daryl Richards, September, September 6th. He's just a kid. He was 20, 19, 20 years old. He was accused of pointing a gun at people while he's walking down the street. And clearly that's not his nature. And he also is going through mental health stuff like that. It's been talked about with his family. And that's even hard to even bring up because it's such a taboo subject in our own communities. And to even try to talk about that in the general public, to have to like, even explain or like whatever combat whatever police story saying that your son was a dangerous person even though he wasn't and they were hunting for him he was hiding he was hiding under a stair for hours what is that how does that show that he like he's scared he's yeah. hiding scared from a SWAT team they called the SWAT on him and then they sent dogs out there and then they sent a cop out there and then all of a sudden you know the body cam shuts off right when they kill him it somehow gets turned off by the rifle or something you know Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Right. And then and then lastly, you know, there was Marshall Miles, who was also having a mental health crisis. And, you know, he's jumping on top of cars, talking erratically, erratically to people. And he was, like, taken in by SAC Sheriff and SAC PD. I don't know what they were doing. They were having a hard time trying to get him inside the jail. You know, what's the rush to get inside someone inside the jail? What's any different? Like, why is anyone in a rush? Like, you're going to be stuck... And whatever processing system, why do you have to use such excessive force to get someone inside a cage? Like, like why harm someone to get in someone inside the cage? Like, I don't understand why everything is so punitive. Everything is so punitive. Everything is about about power. Like, there's no care involved in in policing whatsoever. And so, like, he's just telling them he can't breathe and all this thing. You know, the repeated what we hear all the time. You know, before someone dies. And they sat on top of him, and they put him in a coma. And then he died three days later in the hospital. Do you know how long they sat on him for? I don't know. It's on video. It was the first video that Sack Sheriff released ever. They we, we didn't even ask them to do that. Because Sack Sheriff aren't required to even have show video. That was an interesting play, like, on their end. And the thing is, they showed that video before even showing it to the family. Oh, shit. Yeah. Why did they show that video? I mean, isn't it incriminating? It is. And the thing, the thing is, they're so not even human to think that that was so terrible. That they had four or five people sit on top of Marshall Miles 
to to restrain him? Why was that even necessary? It's so fucking gross that they showed that to the public without right, exactly con- like consent from the family. Right. I mean, they're so inhumane that they think this is okay. Yeah. Like if people think like that and thought that's okay, that's a problem too. I read that uh, this one woman, she wrote an article about how white people, they watch these videos of black people being victims of violence. And they say that it's, you know, like, oh, don't look away. You have to feel empathy for these people. But she yeah. hypothesizes that it's not even actually about that. She says she thinks that when they are watching these videos, it just reaffirms their status on the racial hierarchy. Right. It reaffirms right. Their- position as the person holding the nightstick not the person being beaten by it yeah that's i don't think it's watching violence doesn't help deter violence i've seen education done where people just like try to make white people watch like violent stuff happen to like people of color but like why does that have to come to that why does it have to like why do we have to put ourselves on display to be like brutalized to make why do we have to even do that to even like have fucking humanity you know like fuck that shit like, why I'm, like, so over that and, like, that approach, like, that's... No, we don't have to, like, be seen beaten. I mean, I understand it to an extent, but at the same time, it's, like, like that's not education. I can just tell you. Like, I should just tell you... I should just be able to tell you that these things are happening in my community and you should believe me, you know? Yeah. And then we can have a conversation about it. I mean, after that whole thing passed that year, we were just fucking burnt out and our membership were, like, falling in BLM Sacramento. A few members were just like finally being able to talk and the thing is like we stayed organizing and doing work and we didn't really get to know each other as a team honestly which is really strange because we all had our own personal lives like we all had full-time jobs we have families we all have like all these other things to do and then like when we have time we're like put out all the time for blm sack and then it became just so toxic that people were had been going through this for years and not had been talking about the abusive leadership and then finally in in 2018 not 2018 2019 a year later we called down on tanya to step down even after having you know multiple healing circles with like people who had been abused and an intervention with her to kind of tell her the way we felt you know she was just kind of just in complete denial and kind of frames it the way that she never showed us enough love. I don't get understand how you can think that just because you abused us, we just wanted more love instead of abuse. Yeah. Anyways, I'm not, I'm not really trying to get into like all this other stuff she said. She just isn't really trying to hold herself accountable. I mean, she's really extorting. She's the poverty pimp that we all know and talk about because she has been getting away with getting a lot of money from the community without being accountable to where that money is going. And especially when every member in the in that chapter has been spending their own money, their own hard-earned money to support this work. And so she's able to quit her job, have a place to stay and be supported and feel like she's working. Really, she's really not doing any work. We're doing all the people... And the chapter was just doing all the legwork. And then she gets to decide how to delegate and do whatever. And then decide that she's always, you know, in the front talking to the media. Uh, but the thing is, she's taking all our talking points and making it her own, you know. Mm-hmm. She has and she's still doing that. Think tank, you know, she doesn't have that anymore. She doesn't have the strong think tank that she used to have, but she's still trying. And it doesn't matter. She has the brand, the BLM brand. And that's the problem with the brand is that people just follow the brand and not the actual movement. Yeah. I mean, similar stuff has happened with BLM across the country, basically. Right. 
Right. And that's, yeah, that's been a problem with BLM across the country. And that still hasn't been talked about. We still use the BLM hashtag and it's not about BLM hashtag because it's, it's taken money and movement work from Ferguson and all the people on the ground um, that has been doing work on the streets and to create a global network that isn't supporting the people on the ground that allowed for even this network to exist that's that's a problem yeah that's co-optation for you like exactly <laughs> i mean i didn't have to the... say it, but it was co-opted i mean like it didn't have to be co-opted it could have been like working alongside and actually creating a greater network but it unfortunately didn't didn't pan out that way and we just all learned the hard way and and you know it's like people are still recovering from the trauma of organizing in the spaces that never supported them and just used them it was a long journey for me and it's still a journey for a lot of people i mean it's still a journey for me too but i still see it out there the way there's a lot of egos out there they're there for the moment and not for the movement Mm -hmm. and to capitalize on this and so i'm like really sick of it and Luckily, I'm not out there all the time because I'd just be, you know, going off on people all the time. And so with with that happening, there was like a big, big kind of black, not black hole, you know, like a power thing where it's like, okay, BLM's not the group to do the things anymore. So who's going to be the one to do things, you know, in town? And so like slowly groups were like kind of doing the work that they've always wanted to do, like decarcerate Sacramento popped up which has been doing a lot of great work with like stopping the jail expansion, just creating advocacy and awareness for people who have been living in very terrible situations in the Sac County jail and advocating for folks and doing jail support. Um, we still have a cop watch. We still have like things from BLM Sac. I mean, BLM Sac then turned into that the Liberation Collective for Black Sacramento. But Tanya's still doing her thing with BLM SAC after we told her to step down. We after we told even BLM National to to do a cease and desist on the name. And then there's anti police terror project that came from the Bay, you know, Asantawa and Adam, you know, they're a really amazing couple and they're super rad and they just moved here from the Bay and they are the co-founders of anti police terror project in the Bay. I mean, they were here for a few years before they even started, you know, moving. They're organizers, you know, they're like trying to get to know the community before even like trying to step in and like say this is how you do things, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I like super respect that. Yeah, I respect a lot of the people from the Bay because what, how I learned to organize and how I learned such radical politics actually was from the Bay and initially from Anti-Police Terror Project before I even moved to Sacramento because they were they were doing first responders, they were doing medic, street medic stuff, and they were, they had stopped any cop violence in Oakland for a while. Wow. Having Anti-Police Terror Project. They had an amazing network and team. I was like, nothing I've ever seen in my life, you know, it's like, and this is like 2016. And so they're way ahead of it. And then coming to Sacramento, you know, we're trying to bring a lot of that that's needed from the Bay to here. And it was just like a lot of pushback and whatnot. But anyways, you know, now there's Anti-Police Terror Project in Sacramento. There's Mental Health First, um, which is runs on the weekend. It's from 7 in the morning to 7, you know, it's 7 at night from Friday to Sunday, 7, 7, at, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. It's a mental health first responders, and it's an alternative to calling the cops, essentially. You know, we try to do what we can with trying to figure out mental, like, figuring out a mental health crisis and then giving people the resources needed, because we obviously we know that if someone's having a mental health crisis, the cops aren't be the ones are going to be the ones to be called out to respond to that. So to prevent any state-sanctioned violence, we have to like intervene and try to have people call us instead of calling the actual cops. And so there, there has been a lot of amazing work from folks 
in Sacramento to kind of fill in the void of like what Sacramento, I mean, Balaam Sac was trying to do, I mean, and they were trying to do a lot. I mean, we were trying to do a lot, but I think what Balaam ended up doing was being a gatekeeper to activism and black spaces and radical black spaces. And so now, um, you know, a lot of the work on the ground here is, there's a lot. There's so many, there's NorCal Resist doing amazing work with like for undocumented folks um, and supporting their families and like struggling right now, getting people's stimulus checks and redistributing them, getting veggies and food, you know, all that stuff, all the essential services. Um, there's Sacramento Soup, which came from Sacramento Homeless Union, and they have a mutual aid program, a solidarity network. So it's so SAC, Solidarity of Unhoused Folks. And what we do is we make anywhere between 100 to 300 meals a day, um, and we provide water, fruit, you know, a meal, um, clothes if you have it, tents if you have it, uh, sanitizer, masks, like on anything you can think of that, like, you know, we need, like, for folks on the street to survive. Like, we try to, and then we get clothes donations sometimes, too. And that was beginning of COVID. They were already doing this work, but since COVID kind of shut everything down and the services for unhoused people, there was a lot of solidarity in, like, organizing and, like, figuring out distribution all around Sacramento, not just one part. It's, like, every day we go to a different part of town. The numbers here are, like, 11,000 unhoused people. And there's a lot, even there's a lot even going there. And there's Black Zebra, who does a lot of amazing camera work at every action. Uh, they put together really amazing footage. I mean, I mean, the first time I remember hearing about them was actually from last year with the SAC Homeless Union and other groups. I think Services Not Sweeps, probably too, from SF. There was the Stockton Boulevard encampment that were 170 people evicted. What that did was just move people down the street and cause people to get displaced without placement. Just made it more dangerous for people to be on the street because they didn't have a community or a place where they could protect each other. And, you know, after that had happened there, you know, there's four people had died, five people have died, you know, in the streets because, you know, not having stable housing or income. I'm doing work with them and TLC, the Black Liberation Collective, has now turned into... There's two groups in there. There's the direct action group and there's a healing focus group. And I'm kind of doing work with both. And the healing justice group is uh, working more in like intra-community like, uh, work as opposed to like direct action and protest and advocacy work. And I think which is beautiful and definitely needed because there's not enough groups like that that actually more focus solely on the internal work because we as organizers and activists never think about that that. Like long term, we do have to have rituals and healing practices because this work is so traumatizing. I think that's essential and like a missing in a lot of activist community spaces. Yeah, and also in the like narrative of what activism is. Right, right. Like, uh, we just a lot of the work is just kind of like feeding people and giving out water and medical treatments. Caring is resilience, and caring is resistance, and that's like so important. Yes. Yeah, I think it took me a while to understand that that even just because how we even view activism and like how we consume what that even looks like. And it's like super convoluted until you get to the ground, until you get to the grassroots work, until you like really see what's going on. And like yeah. you have the years of experience to like really understand the long term work that it's going to take. Like we want people around. We want people to, to support each other, you know, yeah. to protect each other, to feel like we are worth fighting for. 
that we worth, you know, like all these things, you know, like even, even our dire circumstances, like it doesn't matter. Like we still are worth living and we're worth taking care of. And the thing is like, just because you're in the situation, you're not worse off. You just happen to face all these situations that I was able to avoid in my life because this could happen to anyone. Obviously you're going to get it worse off if I'm a queer Lao person, non-binary person. And just because of social constructs, sometimes people see me as a male and not as threatening. You know, maybe sometimes people see me as like, too femme and flamboyant and they see me as threatening to their masculinity you know like you know you never know with this being being a non-binary person you know and you never know with the people around you yeah i mean long term wise it's it really is that is the hard work because the easy work is to take action to do something but the long the long work is to process reflect and really change to actually do better to improve you and your community yeah and i think in terms of just like solidarity caring actually really that's solidarity that's that, more solidarity than anything else yeah it's like you talking to your neighbor you talking to your family you talking to your white community member is fucking more solidarity than you going out holding a BLM sign yeah, for sure. And like, if you think about what oppressors are doing, low key, they're they're dividing communities, they're pitting them against each other, and they're causing rifts, or they're like widening right. rifts within communities to try to right. just divide people. So it's like, mm-hmm. violence will never beget justice, like it only begets more violence. Right. And so the more radical thing is to not play into their bullshit. Right, right. I mean, if you already know their bullshit and you have a chess game with it, then sure, go for it. But let's not do that. I mean, like from people who are more experienced, like already know not to. But like the people who are new to this, like sure, have your rage and anger, but know that this is going to happen. It's up to us who have been there to like give guidance to people who haven't been around. Know that if you're out in the streets that you will get arrested and you might not have a lawyer and you might just get stuck with some fees and you can't even pay for it. You know, you might get an assault charge. You might get a felony. So like it's really dangerous out here. It's not fun and games. With what happened to me recently, I got shot four times in the face and then four times on my body. Oh my God. Um, can you just talk about like what happened? Because I this is really important for yeah yeah totally yeah. So I'm glad we got to this point now. Like I mean that day it was May 20th, and what I had already been doing was like what I usually I'm doing. I handing out food and snacks to people, and in this case, you know, it's for activists and people who have been out there all day since like nine in the morning. You know. And it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night now. And I didn't know how wild it was getting. There was like, no, there were people looting and rioting. But where I was meeting people at, it was like already kind of, it was chaotic. I didn't know it was going to be that chaotic. Um, May, yeah, it's May 20th. I'm a, a lot of my friends were out there. I mean, I already had dropped stuff off and dropped people off to a certain location. But me, I'm like, with Sack Soup, I do a lot of distribution. And I already have a lot of supplies in my car. And so... That night, I was, like, about ready to leave town. I got a gig car and everything. I had my mans in the car, ready to go to Santa Cruz. <laughs> and I decided to, like, oh, let's make this one last stop. You know, I'll drop off my friend, too. I have, like, the stuff I need to give to people before I leave town. I hear that J and 20th was a good spot to go because there were people out there. And I get there, I'm like, holy shit. Like, there's, like, flashbangs in the sky. I'm like, holy shit. It's, like, smoky. Everyone's scattered everywhere. I didn't notice there was a police line in the block ahead of me. But I was like, okay, I need to go out there, find some people, and drop this off and take the fuck off because this is, like, way too intense. 
And so I uh, walk down Jazz Alley towards 21st Street, and then I make a left, and I see this police line. And they're, like, shooting rubber bullets into the crowd, tear gas canisters, like, within the same intersection, you know, like, 40. So, shit. I was like, holy shit. I can't believe I, like, I cannot believe it. I was, like, in shock. But then, like, I I watched, like, the tear gas canister, like, fall on the ground. I'm like whoa that's what it's one of those things you know it's like i never get to see this you know you see this like live in like other countries and like other cities and you're like oh shit we're at this point now they're shooting tear gas canisters and flashbangs and like rubber bullets everyone getting shot up out here and i just like needed to go see one of them like you know like it reminded me of palestine instantly you know like it reminded me of like the weapon industry and like who they're selling it to and like who's making this stuff and who's profiting off of this right now like there's so many companies profit, profiting off of this revolution and, you know, this uprising, I should say. I pick one up and I look at it, but before I know it, I was like on the ground. I like felt something and I was on the ground. I was like, oh shit, I'm hit. I'm like, fuck. I don't know how long I was passed out. I hear I was passed out for like a few seconds, but I felt conscious. I was like thinking to myself saying like, I need to move because I know I'll get shot again. Like I know what they're going to do already. And luckily someone like pulled me really hard dragged me a few feet away and I was like became conscious and like started walking uh the other direction away up J Street my head started like pouring blood and I still don't know what happened I just know like I got hit in the head some guy gave me his shirt and wrapped it around my head likely I probably would have bled out but then I finally saw some of my friends and they're like doctors and medics you know and they're they're, like holy like you know, I was never there and I was never going to be there. And then all of a sudden they saw me there and I'm bleeding. I'm from my head and they're like trying to get me help. But I, I already know what to do. I'm like, you know, my car's down there. I need to go down there, back a block. And then obviously I need to go to the fucking hospital. But then they were still shooting down at us. So we had to walk down the block. And then it was so fucking scary. I'm like, stop running down the street. Turn to the side streets. Like, get out of the way. Like they're going to come for you and they're going to hit you. And you know, like, and there were so many people got, got hurt that day. And I was likely to turn around the alley and walk two blocks down from the side, get in my car, you know, and then like have my friend drive me to the hospital. And then when I got to the hospital, I didn't know how many bullet, how many shots, how hard I was hit. But when I got everything done, like when they covered my, my forehead, what had a gash, had a CT scan and whatever the fuck. I had three fractures in my skull, minor brain bleed, a kind of a gap in my skull where air could get inside if I sneezed too hard. I broke my primordial like ridge arc like on my eyebrow. And then like when I had surgery on it like the last day, they noticed even before maybe, they had noticed like the bone had turned where like it could have poked my eye out. Wow, before even yeah. Um so that was just my skull and like I mean part of my skull, like my jaw so the tear canister hit my top right head and caused my stitching the bone. It, it, it hit so hard that it, it fractured, pulverized it, fractured it, went straight to the bone. I had to get a tetanus shot and 12 stitches a few days later when I finally could get surgery. I got surgery on it. Um, so that's one spot. And then I got four other bull, rubber bullet spots. And this is close range. And this is on my head, you know. They're like burn marks. But the one, one shattered my jaw completely and I can barely open my mouth to eat. I open up like maybe an inch-ish and like, that's just the front of my mouth. Like I can barely chew in the back, you know? And they pulverized the jaw. Like they couldn't even do surgery on it because it was so bad. It was so inflamed and traumatized and they would have to wait for it to heal. And then after it healed, it'd be considered a cosmetic surgery, which is bullshit. And so 
I don't have insurance, so I'm like worried about that. You know, I already have a GoFundMe. Um, my friends, you know, I'm like with a lot of organizers, so like we were on it. And for me, it was the most important to, to like control the narrative and like tell my story before they can step tell it. And yeah, like I spent four days in the hospital waiting for surgery. I discovered I had eight total bullet wounds and a tear shot canister. So like maybe nine total. And I'm really fucking lucky to be alive. They really tried to kill me. There's no reason they should have aimed for my head. I got the worst of it, but there's a lot of people that were harmed, you know, that aren't able to talk. That got blinded. 18-year-old that got charged with assault after being hit in the jaw. And, you know, my friend has her hand broken and, like, 10 shots all around the body. Like, all my friends have been shot up, and they, no one knows about that, but we know about the certain ones that's already happened. Like, they shot up so many people that week. And the thing is, they're supposed to log in every shot that they're doing. So I don't, I wonder how we can get information about that. Like, if they're supposed to log every shot, then they should know every shot, right? And that definitely wasn't the case because they were shooting it like, you know, as an automatic. If it was, if it could be, you know, they probably would try and do that. Fucking cowards. Fucking cowards, you know? Like, I was 20 feet away. The doctor said someone had to shot this really close range for it to get really bit this bad. And it's funny because I'm, I'm doing all these interviews and making them look really bad. And it's funny because that night I w- went to the hospital and finally got a room two cops came in to try to question me about the incident. And the officer was like, really? Was like, I wasn't there, so, you know, I can't say anything, but, you know, I would like to get an incident report. I'm like, what? What do you, what? I'm like, what do you need? What is it? I'm like, no, I'm not talking to you. You already fucking know what happened. Go talk to your fucking pig friends. Um, I need a fucking lawyer. I don't want to talk to you. And then he brought in his other friend who was like, maybe the sergeant or whatever. I had told him the same thing. I'm like, and he was just like, in the, like, the thing is they walk in the room unwarranted and no one told me the cops were going to come inside. They're allowed to do this. They're allowed to just walk in the room. They're allowed to like, just get your medical records. Like, I don't understand how, what, what about HIPAA? Like what happened with that? Like, I don't understand why that doesn't count with for cops, which I really need to look into. And I really want my lawyers to look into. Like, cops can't just come into your hospital room. There should be, like, something against that. I don't I don't understand how that works. But they did that, you know? Like, they did that. They tried to look at my wounds to see if there were maybe actually tear gas canisters. I already, have, I already have pictures and whatnot. So, yeah, they came and fucking harassed me that night. But luckily, I stood my ground. I'm lucky to, like, know these things, to, like, feel safe enough to stand my ground. You know, they could have done anything to me, really. But at the end of the day, cops are really cowards. They stand behind the illusion of power. And when that doesn't fit, then, or when that doesn't stand against what you hold against them, then they, they cower and they, they, they like back off uh, because they have nothing standing behind them except for institutional racism and the courts and the laws and whatever, you know, that's a lot already. So they do feel brave a lot of the times. And so since, since all of this, I've been talking to a lot of media, controlling the narrative and telling my story and using my pseudo name, you know, I'm not using my real name because obviously they're going to, find me a lot easier if I use my real name. And they have been coming to my house unwarranted again and walking past my front gate without a warrant to my front door asking about me. And not even knowing that it's my house. Like they don't know I actually live here when they have come visit certain places that they've visited. I don't know how many places they visited, but I've gotten a call from my old place somewhere in Sacramento saying that they dropped by and they had the card and they're like, what a question be about what happened. And so, you know, I've been in and out of town just to like get away from the energy and like just give myself room to process, reflect and think and like also to stay out of organizing and not be on the streets. Because like I was not trying to be out like in front of cops. Obviously that night I was trying to leave town and I know myself 
like being years in the streets that I will fucking go off on a cop. I will fucking tear that motherfucker apart. I will like talk shit of him. I will like swear on his ancestors. I will like put him to shame. You know, like I give no fucks when I see cops in the streets. I will tear them to shreds. I will like, you know, ridicule them. So it's not good for me. You know, I will definitely start a fight with the cop. These folks are really fragile. Yeah, I know not to be out there. So I've been like, you know, organizing from afar and probably just staying away and doing more of this advocacy work because I know this is more than me and it's about police brutality and I'm I'm lucky to be alive, you know, George Floyd isn't like all the people who have interacted with the police that are, you know, homeless or like black have not been able to survive this. It's been a lot and I'm still processing a lot and I just want to make sure I'm doing right by the community. And I've been really supported by the community so I, I really owe a lot to being having such a good head on my shoulders uh, and feeling feeling well enough to to be doing this do you feel like the cops were targeting you at that time why did you get the brunt of the violence that night i think they did see me as a threat i mean i'm sure some of them recognize me because i've been out in the streets you know oh i've been harassed like you know as much as they harassed them i harassed them back like it's not harassment i'm trying to you know, have a conversation tell them to quit their jobs and find a new job I'm trying to tell them like this is not how you interact with you know the community you know <laughs> this is not how you talk to people they did target me that day and whether they knew me or not they saw me as a threat and they shot at my head they aimed at my head and it wasn't coincidence because there were four shots to my head and three shots to my upper body. That is not a fucking coincidence. So they're obviously targeted me. And that was that's definitely not a protocol for how to, you know, it's definitely protocol to repress. Yeah. But it's definitely not protocol for, you know, what they meant to use it as, as non-lethal force. And, you know, as non-lethal force, that could have easily killed me if I had moved my body any differently. You know, if I had hit my temple, you know, it could have blinded my eyes like it blinded another woman. There was a lot of things that could have gone wrong. The city's lucky that this didn't go off as bad because honestly, like, it was hard for me to tell people what happened to me because I knew everyone's going to get angry. I knew it would be bad. It would just be more violence. And I didn't want that for my community because I don't know how we would recover from it. I don't know how Sacramento would recover from it. And imagine if I had died. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what would happen. I feel like there would be no turning back for the city. And that's that's the city's fault. That's PD's fault. And I would understand why people are so angry. And I still do. I am I understand why people are angry. Like obviously like people have the right to be angry. And hopefully, you know, if that rage can be turned into something more conducive for the overall community. Mm -hmm. It's productive in initial sense, but like long term wise, you know, it's not it's not gonna be the kind of future we want. So it's been about a month since this happened. What's the situation like in Sacramento since then? There's a lot of solidarity. There is an amazing amount of solidarity amongst a lot of different coalitions and groups. And there's a lot of community dialogue that has not been had, that's been so needed. There's like defund the police, that's like CD white stuff and like all these things. But also there's like the trans community here in Sacramento have been holding it down for so long that they are never recognized for their work. Like we are the backbone that support every fucking movement. And it's never about us. Like we support every movement. And when it comes to like supporting us as equal people on the ground and when we get murdered, and we get murdered by even our own community, and people aren't talking about it, then there's a problem. Even us as trans folks are tired of having to back our community members and then them not backing us up. I haven't been plugged in with what Nia's been doing. And I know Nia's been doing a lot of uh, the Asian solidarity for Black Lives and the trans solidarity for, like, they're kind of leading the work, and I know they have a good amount of support. There's, like, such beautiful support with the queer community here in Sacramento and 
I really owe a lot of my own identity and my power to like the the friends that I have here, especially my friend Ayo Ayotunde, like a well known like black trans activist here in, in Sacramento and they've like always been there for me. Awesome. That's it for today. You've just heard another episode of Escape from Plan A. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll have all of the funds um, and the organizations that he mentioned in the show notes. And uh, if you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, anywhere there's podcasts, and consider donating to our Patreon. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Awesome. Bye. Thank you.